Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of The Relic, starring Tom Sizemore, Penelope Ann Miller, Linda Hunt, and James Whitmore. Directed by Peter Himes. Based on the popular book by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, released in 1997 on a budget of $60 million, gross $33.9 million at the box office. So, Nick, why are we talking about The Relic here in February? Why not? Um, <laughs> I think uh, we were discussing that we'd like to kind of do like these nice little like one-off monster movies or like kind of like 90s fair. I mean, we're going to get a little bit further into this as uh, the next reviews come out. But uh, Relic was a movie that I actually had suggested because it's one that I had vaguely remembered from my youth. I remember seeing it three times in the movie theater wow. when I was in seventh grade or eighth grade, one of those two. Um but yeah, it was one I actually saw on Netflix, and I was like, hey, why don't we uh, review this one? Kind of gets into the whole motive of what we're going for here with these uh, 90 monster duds, I guess we could call it, as far as the box. <laughs> I'm not going to say duds as far as the output of the movie, but the actual input as far as the money made. So yeah, I thought this one would fit in really nicely, and it's one that you actually don't hear many people talk about. I mean, some of the other movies that we'll be talking about in the future are kind of running jokes i guess you could say or running gorilla jokes um you'll get <laughs> yeah. that as this stuff comes out yeah, yeah but um but this one seems to be kind of uh lost and you know kind of lost in the era but a little bit that i i i just found this out too maybe about a couple of weeks ago was this was actually part of a pretty popular book series one that i had no idea existed and kind of reading the plot summaries for those books i have no idea why they exist but maybe you could fill us in on that i my understanding of this well you said you were in seventh grade when this came out i was a sophomore in college and um but wow, i we're that we're that far apart in age Jay. <laughs> i knew about this though ahead of time because when the book came out a girl i had been dating at the time had read it and just raved about it and you had to understand the girl. She was a biologist, and that was sort of her thing. And so one of the central characters, of course, is a biologist. So it was, and it's written by, I think Preston and Child have like a science background of some sort. They're kind of like Dime Store Michael Crichton's in some way. I mean, they write pulpy novels, you know, but they have a whole series following like Degusta, Lieutenant Degusta, and, and Agent Pendergrast, who is not in this film, but is in the book. But anyway, she turned me onto the book, and I, I got into reading it, and I, I won't lie, it's a good little page turner. I mean, it's fun, and, and I liked the book. I've read it a couple of times, and I think I've even listened to the audio book before. And I thought, eh, that would make a pretty fun movie. So I found out they're making a movie with this thing, and I thought, okay, Tom Sizemore's the Gusta. I can kind of see that. Penelope Ann Miller, sure, she's kind of the knockoff Meg Ryan, but I, I'm down. Kindergarten cop, you know, sure, whatever. Um, You know, I like her. And so I, I went and saw this in theaters when it came out. I was like, oh, yes, must go. You know, went with this. Me and this girl were not dating at the time. We were friends, and our group of friends went. And she and I sat there just going, holy cow. <laughs> like, this is like that book on speed. And it's it was uh 
it was an interesting experience. I didn't go back to see it. I did not um, fan a menace this, as apparently you did, to see multiple times. But I did rent it when it came out, and uh, I do own the DVD. And so uh, I actually watched it off Netflix this time because it was, it was easier to get to than finding my DVD. But I've seen it several times, and my reaction to it is almost always the same. And it's vacillated between sort of puzzled and amusement to just downright confusion. And I think a lot of it has to do with the director here, uh, Peter Himes. I mean, he's directed such gems as The Presidio, which I actually do like. That's a good sort of 80s B-thriller with Mark Harmon and, and Sean Connery and, and Meg Ryan uh, in it. And he's done End of Days, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger Takes on the Devil, which is, you know, always fun. He did 2010, the uh, grand sequel to 2001, and if you've ever seen that, you you have thoughts about it. Uh, Time Cop, you know, the, the grand... Uh, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme action and he also did Sudden Impact not Sudden Impact Sudden Death the Jean-Claude Van Damme is a security guard at a hockey rink so uh, yeah I, this guy pulls off uh, techno babble sci-fi bullshit <laughs> and generally does See, it for I, not I, a ton I of love, money <laughs> I, I love Time Cop Time Cop though when I was at uh, Walmart uh, not uh, not too long ago I actually got six copies of Time Clock I mean Time Cop for five bucks so. <laughs> there, I I think there are sequels. I, I don't know. I've never seen Time Cop. I shouldn't knock on it because I've only you know seen part of it. But maybe someday we'll we'll visit Jean Claude's uh, grand oeuvre. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, the actors here. I, I you know I described him as that. I think Tom Sizemore. You know, it's hard not to think of him now in his celebrity rehab phase or whatever but at one time was a sought after character actor. Um, but actually, is really bad at acting. Um, he's sort of like a bad Michael Madsen, who's also not gonna, a good actor. I was going to say exactly that, because I get him and Michael Madsen so confused in their 90 roles. Because when I put this on, I'm like, oh, this is this, this is that Michael Madsen film where he's in there with the with the woman and everything. And I'm th- going through it. I'm like, that's Tom Sizemore. I'm like, what am I thinking? I'm thinking of Species. That's yes. That's <laughs> another 90s uh, monster flick. We might have to do. There's, there's a bunch of those. We may do one of them. I don't, I don't think I'm down to oh, the yeah. series. Every, every teenage boy watched those when those came out. Uh, there's, uh, a, there's, course, a re- there's a reason for the for special that. effects. <laughs> yes, of course. And by, well, we won't even go there. But yeah, uh, you know, Tom Sizemore, I think, has done two good things in his entire career, in my opinion. He did Saving Private Ryan. He was really good in that. And he was great in Heat. Uh, that uh, Kurt and I uh, and uh, Ron did a review of Heat a couple years ago. And that was like, he's good in that as a side part. I don't think he can ever lead a cast. Um, and I don't even know that he's asked to lead anything here. We can get into that maybe as we talk about it. But um, yeah. I, you know, I, I kind of take or leave him. Penelope Ann Miller, I like her. I mean, I've, I've never seen her in anything where I thought, oh, she's awful. She's fine. She's serviceable. She's a, you know, decent actress. And even in later age, she's actually done some pretty neat dramatic roles and done some stuff on TV that's good. So she's fine. I mean, and I think, you know, James Whitmore's been in like everything for 80 years. I don't think he's with us anymore, but, uh, he's in this. And Linda Hunt is like, I, I swore that the new, like, uh, alien thing in the bar at the new Star Wars movie was just Linda Hunt in some CGI makeup, but apparently it was not. But I, I mean, it, it's so much like her. I mean, I was going to say, uh, Linda Hunt, um, that's who the uh, girl in the Incredibles was uh, made after, right? The one that did the, uh, costumes. That I mean, and, that, that, and Vera her. Wang. Yeah. It's sort of a mix between those two. Yeah. Yeah, and she was in Kindergarten Cop as well. You know what? I didn't think about that, but yes, she was. She was the principal. So we have sort of, if we could have only gotten Schwarzenegger to be Degusta, um, <laughs> or maybe he could have been the, the Cathoga. 
Um, so because the thing moves about like he does. So, but I guess we'll go into that. I, should I do a plot? I mean, for those who don't know about this, because this one is kind of hidden in the 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 bargain bin, so you may not know about it. So this yeah, it's, it's it's in the four ninety nine bin at Walmart at uh, Best Buy. So. Yeah, for sure. If you go to Walmart, it's three bucks. So here we go. <clears throat> so so check this out. A cultural anthropologist named John Whitney is in the jungles of Brazil researching some kind of lost tribe thing that worships the devil god Cathoga, which they supposedly conjure with some concoction uh, to ward off their enemies. And Whitney gets freaked out, demands that his crates of relics and leaves from the tribe not be loaded on the boat headed back for the Chicago Museum of Natural History. Uh, but, of course, they tell him, no, that's too much trouble because Customs is a bitch. And, uh, you know, he stows away on the boat uh, to hoping to throw them off on the sea, only to find out that the crates are actually stuck on the docks as the boat leaves. So six weeks later, back in Chicago's harbor, Lieutenant D'Augusta arrives to see a freighter being towed in seemingly... Uh, unmanned drifting in the area and upon investigation lieutenant superstitious who has the weirdest set of superstitions we'll ever talk about uh, is and afraid of everything from black cats to stepping over dead bodies discovers a ton of the latter and one of the former and surmises along with his partner detected nobody that it must have been a drug hit clear and present danger style son so back at the museum we catch up with evolutionary biologist and everyone's favorite former first grade teacher in Astoria Dr. Margot Green and all she wants to do is for weasel scientist Dr. Greg Lee to not steal her grant money and to do her work. She's annoyed that the museum funds John Whitney's escapades and when his crates arrive she examines one of the fungus leaves realizing that the fungus is loaded with all sorts of animal hormones. Are you with me? So, in spite of having no idea what is going on and why people are getting killed around this museum, the, the cops are forced to open the place up for the superstition show. And, of course, the Cathoga attacks and kills a bunch of guests. The mayor and some others get let out by Detective Nobody through the sewers while Augusta and Green chase the creature. And along the way, Dr. Green gets some of its blood or saliva or jizz or something off of a door and runs it through a magic computer <laughs> gene sequencer to realize the creature is at least part human. So, after some chases and a really awful idea these two try to pull off in murky water. The creature chases Dr. Green back to the lab space and along the way she revisits the magic computer station and learns that the creature is not only human but none other than John Whitney now in Cathoga form and after it sexually assaults her with its tongue she hastily mixes up some chemicals throws it in a microwave, sets fire to everything around her including the chasing Cathoga. She jumps in a boiling vat of water uh, while rushing flames destroy the creature and Lieutenant Augusta pulls her from the wreckage of the museum lab and presumably her career to walk off into the Chicago night sky as credits roll. And that's about as good as I can sum up what happens in this film. Did, did I cover it good enough, Nick? I think you recovered it very well. Yeah, I know. Speaks, I mean, I know we try to keep this plot summary shorter. If you, if you've been a longtime fan, you know the evolution of the plot summary here has gone from like go back and listen to the Alien series, and it's basically Nick talks for nine minutes, and then I get to talk again, um, and then you know you go to something else like Heat. People rob a bank and they die at the end. You know, so we we've shortened them up, but I wanted to get a lot of that out of the way because I feel like. You could walk through this film directly, but that, that would be almost boring. There's just some high points to hit, and that's the basic story. Now, I don't want to do a book review here, um, but I want to tell you, like comparing this to the book, I'm trying to think of a good analogy of this. It would be as if you went to your local neighborhood dive bar there in Charlotte, and you listened to a Beatles cover band right, play the entire White Album. 
Okay, that's about what the movie translation of the book is. Like, there's missing pieces. There's a lot of people that aren't there. There's characters completely eliminated. And the biggest difference, besides the creature, which is we'll get into in a bit, is Degusta. And I want, I want to start with him for just a second before we get into the plot. In this movie, he is portrayed as like this wacky, almost unhinged, superstitious cop. And he has this whole story with a bullet and all that. In the book, he abhors superstitions. Like, he thinks it's the dumbest thing on earth. And for whatever reason, they decided, the five people that wrote this, <laughs> that took the book and, and molded it into the script, decided, no, we need to reverse that. And I wanted to ask you, wouldn't this have worked so much better if he walked into that museum, they're doing a superstition show, and he's like, holy shit, really? And instead of like, oh no, I'm now scared of this, like, it totally deballs him as a cop. Yeah, I. <coughs> oh God, I just pulled a J. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, his superstitious uh, character, you know, trait. It was, it was annoying. I really got tired of hearing about it. You know, like I, I do like the story of when he was the first, when he was a beast, when he was a beat cop, and him, you know, basically surviving on a freak, you know, fluke where the bullet didn't come out of the gun because of some reason there, but I don't really buy that into him being superstitious because for that to have worked with being superstitious, it would have been something like maybe he picked up a penny that was head, you know, head side up before that happened. And that caused him to be superstitious to me. That didn't make any sense when they were bringing up, you know, that that was the reason why he was superstitious. I don't buy that at all. I thought it was a little bit too convenient that of course they're doing a superstition exposition there at the, uh, at the museum and he happens to be like the most superstitious person in the world. I mean, he's even more superstitious than like a, like a pro NFL player or something like that <laughs> yeah. who, who yeah. doesn't like wash his jock strap for a whole season or doesn't shave or, you know, what have you. And I, I'm a very superstitious person too. I mean, if you watch, you know, if you're with me with any uh, football games this year, when I'm watching my team go is I wear the same shirt, the same hat. Now, believe it or not, I actually put my hat on backwards when they're on defense and forward when they're on offense. Basically, <laughs> the bill of the hat, meaning which way the ball I want it to go, whether it's backwards or forwards. Um, even the type of drink that I drink, the spot on the couch, how I lay. <laughs> You're like a direct not, TV commercial waiting to be made, by the way. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. And even, on, I know Jay probably knows this, is I chew tobacco. And... If they're on defense, I chew the tobacco on the top of my lip. If they're on offense, I chew it on the bottom. <laughs> wow. <laughs> have, have you crossed any black cats or picked up any pennies lately? <laughs> I don't, I'm not that crazy. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, just mildly. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But, 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 but I'm, why I'm saying that is for me being a very you know sports superstitious person, and I think that's actually the most common form of superstition, at least that I've run into, where people are very superstitious being fans. And I guess I'm pretty much to the extreme of that, giving my routine every Sunday or Saturday or Thursday or Monday. I found him to be annoying with his. So yeah. I guess that is saying something when someone who is as superstitious as me finds that his superstitions are just whatever. I mean, even like when there's a there's a later scene where, you know, she's walking through there and she's all like, oh, a penny. And he's like, oh, what side is it? I mean. Again, being a superstitious person doesn't mean I'm superstitious with every little thing. I'll walk under a ladder. I'll open an umbrella inside. I'll kick a black cat down the road. You know what I mean? It's like I, I don't I don't buy that someone's going to be superstitious with every freaking 
you know, I guess commonplace superstition there is. I think that was a little bit. It's dumb. it's so one note. <laughs> that that's the problem. It's so two dimensional and one note. It's like Sizemore totally just mails this in. And I'll tell you how to tell the difference between him and Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen has amazing hair. Tom Sizemore does not. And so that's that's how you can really tell him apart. The, the, oh, um, he does have amazing hair. I just saw Hateful yeah. Eight. And besides his voice now starting to sound like Bender from uh, Futurama, <laughs> yeah. that, hair is, that hair is still flowing pretty well. So. Yeah, I, but uh, Sizemore, though, plays this so one note. We'll come back to him in a minute. Let's, let's start with the movie here because it opens up in the Brazilian jungle or the direct backyard I, I don't know um and, and my wife actually had i don't know that she'd ever seen this or it had been years before so we rewatched it for this she watched it with me and there's the ceremony going on and they're boiling the leaves and he drinks some of it and then this person comes out from the you know the side that's i wanted to ask you is this a kathoga or is this just someone dressed up like tribal kathoga i don't know that was always yeah. my thought watching this because as I brought up, I saw this three times in movie theater as a kid, and whatever our reviews are, I don't think I'm crazy, even though probably everybody who listens to this does think I'm crazy. Um, I did see it because we used to go sneak into movie theaters and see like five movies on on Saturday. But um, when I saw this in the movie theater, you know, the three times that I did see it, I always was questioning that. Actually, the first time I saw this, I remember kind of being like freaked out kind of. I'm like, what the hell is that thing? I mean, is that really a tail? Is is that? I think yeah. it was. I I did too. Uh, I think I'm, it was. I mean, they do a thing that you know the uh, the professor later James Whitmore explains the whole thing of the Cathoga. This is another difference of the book. The tribe was the Cathoga. Their creature was the Mub one. But of course, you know, we're just going to combine that and use the cooler name uh, for this. So Cathoga, whatever. But in the book. It's actually a Cathoga that's chasing the doctor, and you don't know that he becomes the Catho- the the mob one that attacks the the uh, museum until after they've already killed it, and then they run all the magic DNA tests, and they realize, holy cow, it's actually him! Like they thought it had just been killed by him, and you know it stowed its way back to America somehow. But uh, th- I mean, they don't, they almost give that away too early here because he drinks the magic potion, and then he freaks out when the thing kind of hisses at him and i say that that was a kathoga uh in training because the professor goes on later to say they would feed it these leaves or feed it something until it got so out of control that they couldn't really control it anymore and then they would go into hiding and let the kathoga whack their enemies and so i was like this is sort of like a baby kathoga because it does look like the thing has a tail and so I, my wife disagreed she said i think it's somebody in costume and i said well it may just be shitty production design <laughs> Because I mean, yeah. they there's sixty million dollars in this movie. It, a lot of it went to Stan Winston, <laughs> so to create one of the dumbest creatures ever that we'll we'll get into, and that's saying something. But uh, for Stan Winston, but uh, oh, rest in peace. But yeah, I, you know he, he Whitney has his wig out moment, and then he's back on the docks, and it's all about I got to get my crates off of there. And like we said in the summer, he gets on the the boat, throws away sort of uh, Jessica Lang style from King Kong. And then we get the great pan that no here are your crates so clearly marked to the side. And I'm like, if they're that obvious, he couldn't have just looked to the left and been like, oh, there's my crates. Never mind. Uh, you know, and then none of this happens. So it's there's an incredible moment of happenstance that actually gets him back on the boat, too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the setup, though, because, you know, you, you see this creature right there and you see this guy who's very, you know, 
you know, he's got to get on this boat for some reason. He's looking for these crates. What's in these crates? And that was what was going through my mind the first time I saw this was those crates, what's in those crates. And then, of course, when all the later events happening, I'm thinking like, oh, there must have been like a baby, you know, monster. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that name, by the way. I'm just going to call it monster. Um, I figured that's where it came from, that these this creature monster thing was in those crates the entire time. And that's why he was trying to get back. Or maybe that that, um, you know, tribal guy who who we're guessing was half transformed was on that boat i was kind of left questioning what was going on so you're, you're coming yeah. into it with a different perspective because you already knew what was happening so to right. me i was still guessing what was trying to happen so to right. me it was it wasn't so much like oh boy you know they're, they're not following the thing with the books or you're, you're already knowing the ending and you're already putting that into you know your opinion of the movie already i was still guessing at that point and i was kind of trying to you know trying to follow it but i, I found it intriguing i did you know, I will say this, and I've said this before. I can watch a movie and be fine that it's not following the book. The things I'm pointing out are things that I'm like, I'm curious as to why they changed it because I thought that was a smart thing in the book that would have worked in a film. They decided to go a different direction. I'm fine. You translate mediums. I think that's complete license. You don't need to shoot page for page. We talked about this years ago when we did The Shining. You know, that book mm-hmm. is an experience, and then that Kubrick movie is another experience. And, and that's fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. I will say this, even knowing what I knew, I didn't know what the plot of the movie was when I went and saw it. And it had been a long time since I've actually seen it this time. So I thought, do they do that where the guy becomes the thing? Or is it something that's, like, I had forgotten that exactly. And I think no. it tipped off to me later when, like, the big beetle crawls out from underneath one of the leaves after it eats all the hormones or something. But it, it dawned on me. But I was going with it. And I will say it is an intriguing premise because you don't really know what's happening. You know, and then you go back and you get into the harbor. And I had an immediate moment here that I don't know why it's never dawned on me before. But I was like, this looks kind of like the, you know, harbor where the usual suspects went down. You know, I mean, it's a totally different city in the Midwest versus the West Coast. But I thought it's the same boat. It's like the same dude got slaughtered twice or something. I, I don't know. I felt like that's that's what we get is this uh, introduction to the lieutenant and, you know, his partner. And I don't I, the, the character has a name. I don't know. He's detective. Nobody to me. And, it, you know, it doesn't matter. Now, was he is he was he supposed to be the other detective that you brought up in the book? I think he's supposed to be some version of this agent Pendergrast, who's a an FBI agent. But that guy like has a totally different like his role is totally gone. All of the Pendergrass stuff pretty much got put on to Degusta in this movie. And then there was another cop, but I don't remember anything about it. It's been a long time since I read the book, but I, there were three guys and <laughs> two of them were clearly the lead, Degusta and Pendergast, but they've, they've moved on past that and just gone with the Lieutenant. And for the sake of being a movie, if this was a, you know, a television show for 10 weeks on Hulu <laughs> or something, I get it. That, that would work, but I, I'm fine to combine the characters and stuff. I think it's so weird though, because Degusta has to be this totally in charge guy, yet he's so in, unhinged about like black cats and, you know, he's walking around with a bullet and we don't get that story for like an hour and we don't, we don't know what's going on. So he's, I don't know. It's just a different way of reading it. I will say though that I had a total jaws moment when they're looking down in the, the deep well there in the boat and then like the floating head of Ben, what's his name comes going by. You know, I was like, Oh wow, they got the prop out and used it again. Nice. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but that's a good call. I mean, that's interesting that you're saying that this character was combined from two character, two, you know, sounds like two, alpha male style characters from the book yeah. and 
I'm kind of glad that they did that because I think having two guys running around along with also having a main female for being an hour and 50 minute movie, that's just too many characters or at least too many main characters to throw into it. At least in my opinion, if it would have been something like a little bit longer, like let's say they turned this into a three hour movie, maybe they could have like, you know, separated it up and actually had these, you know, two main characters here, but I'm glad that they combined it. I mean, I think it worked for the most part. I don't find him really having any type of, conflicting type reactions or personalities throughout this movie. I think everything that he does, I mean, like I said, the superstition stuff's pretty dumb, but I find everything that he does, you know, pretty organic for, you know, basically a lead detective looking into a murder case. Oh, I mean, look, he sums up crime scenes quick. I mean, this is sort of the blueprint for CSI and some stuff like when they go later on and investigate the bathroom He's looking around like, I want full splatter pattern and I want to know trajectory and angle. Like he walks out in like 12 seconds and says all that to the, you know, the, the crime scene crew. And I was like, well, you know, he's at least competent. So I I think he's a competent guy. And I, yeah, you know, they play him funny though, Nick, because they, they do this story that he just got divorced and he's upset because he lost a custody battle. And it's a running joke for a while of like, he lost the custody of the dog. Now, you have a pretty loyal dog. If people follow you on Facebook and Twitter, they see lots of pictures of Wyatt hanging around. He's made an appearance or two on this podcast before. And I'm like, how how do you lose custody of a dog, Nick? I don't know. Maybe. I, I, I honestly don't know. Uh, I guess that is something that could happen. I mean, it is. Sh- Chicago loggers? Yeah, I mean, it kind of is a possession in a way. I mean. How do you? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, two it's people it's a, going at it. I guess you really can't cut the dog in half. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is a running joke. Like they, like his, you know, detective friend talks about. it, said, "Yeah, don't mention it." He really was close to that dog. And later on, he's making phone calls, and he just sort of randomly giving out orders. Says, "Explain to me how you lose custody of a dog." You know, like he's just, it's still on his mind. So he's supposed to be the flawed, middle aged, little overweight, off his rocker, but good at his job cop and i i'm fine with that again he's very one-dimensional but yeah. i think in a movie I, I took, like this I took him as a guy yeah. who his entire life now is his job exactly and you know like i think the whole thing with bringing up the dog you know yeah it's kind of a joke it's like you know indiana jones like oh <laughs> he was named after the dog and stuff yeah you know, like i think it's kind of like that's supposed to be kind of like a humanizing trait for this guy who's basically a for at least the first part of the movie, pretty impersonal with when it comes to other people. He's very much yeah. job first and really nothing else second. So I yeah. think in a way it's kind of a way to kind of make light of a character who's overly serious in the beginning. I think you also have to put it next to Penelope and Miller's character, Dr. Green, because she is like the total workaholic scientist brainiac just want to do my work like there's a scene where she's practicing her speech for the grant and she's screwing it up and i think she says something to the effect of like just give me the damn money you know and and degusta's like yeah that worked for me you know and so he relates to that and she's trying to be very buttoned down and very serious and so if you had them both be that it would be too much like they would both be too stiff and I actually think the chemistry between the two of them in the book, there's a little more to it. There's a little more romantic angle. Uh, if memory serves correct, I think there was a little bit of one, but like here it's just subtle, but there's good chemistry between our two actors. I think they realize they're in a piece of pulp 
and they just need to like go with it because the star of this is not these people. <laughs> the star is this creature when it finally gets on the screen. I mean, we've established that from the opening scene that that's what you're supposed to pay attention to. Don't worry about the goofy cop. He's there for laughs and for you realize he'll be important later. And here's our scientist lady who explains everything that none of us can possibly ever know. You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's what she's there to do. Uh, but I, I liked her. I, I thought she was fun. You know, cause she rolls up to the museum on her bicycle. She's you know, she's a hipster before we had hipsters. Right. She's changing clothes in the parking lot. And the kids are like, you know, gawking at her. And she's like. Didn't your mom teach you not to stare? You know, she's she's got a little wit to her. She seems to get along with her grad assistants. I, I dug her. I mean, she reminds me of people I've known in higher education work settings for a number of years. Yeah, she kind of reminds If you ever seen the movie uh, Mean Girls? Yes. She kind of reminded me of Tina Fey's character on there. Yeah, very. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. T- as a matter of fact, Tina Fey could have played this. Yeah. I liked her character. I did. I think that uh, she was, you know, she was very likable. I think that, you know, even like her relationship with Augusta, I think it's it's done well. I It's not overly done with the romantic angle. I mean, that could have been, to me, I, I hate that. When you have like a movie where you got two people in turmoil and they end up falling in love and it's like, dude, you got like a, you know, 800 pound monster running around ripping off the yeah. heads. There's no time for, you know, there's no time for love. Oh, that's Jones. Jones. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's it. And I'm glad it was just kind of like almost like a subtle, like respect, maybe. I, I, th- I think it was that, you know, it's just something that's yeah. kind of natural that comes out between two people. So I'm, I'm glad it didn't go any further. No, I, I, li- I like the fact that they played that subtly because that's what we expect is that, well, these two people are going to have some sort of you know, chemistry together and maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they, they bond well. I almost likened it to the way Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves sort of learned how to play off each other in speed. You know, like that became a romance because they told us at the end that it would. And they made a joke out of it, you know, when they're making mm-hmm. out on the, the hoverboard that they fly out on or whatever. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. But <laughs> I'm confusing it with something else. But but I, I know, remember, they made a joke out of it. And this one, I'm like, well, they, they don't really do that. But, you know, he ends up giving her his lucky bullet and, and she, you know, holds on to it and... You know, which I think is funny because, like, they totally objectify this poor woman, like, twice in this movie. Because she's going to be late for the big gala. So, Dr. Uh, Wheelchair is over here, you know, looking at her research while you know, about the animal fungus on the plant. And she's off to the side and we see her, like, stripping down and putting on, you know, a dress and stuff like that. I'm like, well, we had to do that. And then when she gets the bullet, she sticks it in her cleavage. And I'm like, well, and then when she tries to hand it back to him, he gives her this look like, you can hang on to that bullet between your cleavage, baby. You know, so it's there's a little bit of cheesy romance factor to them almost like old noir noir film you know but i was okay with it i mean it was it was fun moreover i think the actress is is actually good like i could it's hard to sometimes buy people when they play a role you know like denise richards at no point in life was a nuclear scientist like at all and when she played one of the james bond film it was one of the biggest jokes ever right I could yeah. buy that this woman probably went to grad school and, you know, know, would know something about biology. Like, she sold me on it because she comes off like a smart woman. You know, I, I, I don't know how I'm saying that right or not, but I buy her as a scientist. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I buy her as a scientist. I mean, I think she's got, like I said, it's like, you know, Tina Fey within Mean Girls, where I totally buy her as a teacher. I do kind of buy her as some type of, you know, molecular or, you know, evolutionary biologist that she does work in the museum. She does kind of come off like that. Like she is, st- you know, st- studious and very intelligent, but not like so stuffy as like, you know, many, 
you know, real life scientists probably are. No, but but not you know, that, she does I, get I one thing. Any, so yeah, she gets one thing right. She is the you know, the workaholic. Like the ones that I know that work in university settings in particular or educational settings, like they're always in their lab doing something. Like I can be running early Saturday morning or something like that, and I can you know run well, by they, the engineering labs and they're working on stuff. And, and I buy that she's working so late because, you know. You, you work in a little bit of a different sector than I do where I work in, you know, the, the private sector and, you know, with as far as, I mean, you do too in a way, but I think when you're working in something where you're, you're depending on funds yes. and basically where you're not, you, your work and what your results are, are basis of getting almost like charity gifts. It, it is. That, no, that's exactly that right. Is, yeah. And, that's I, and exactly I can see why right. someone who, you know, someone who works like a nine to five job at Best Buy is just there to punch their paycheck, sell a couple printers and go back home or, you know, and that store is always going to be there. You know what I mean? Unless, you know, mm-hmm. the economy takes a turn for the worse. It's always going to have some type of security there. Her job isn't secure. No. And it's like her job is all the basis of her her results, how she can sell them off to people who are rich and to be able to get them to open up wallets, open up their wallets to be able to give money that's really nothing more than a tax write-off for them. So yeah. I can see why she's like this extreme workaholic when it comes down to it. Yeah, I mean, they they keep this from the book, too, and this whole conversation she has with Linda Hunt's character, the, the museum director, and James Whitmore, who's like the lead you know professor or whatever there, is that you know, she says, why do we have to do things like a superstition exhibition? Why do we fund things like John Whitney's goofy expades? And they both lay it out for her that, look, all the important work we do gets funded by the attractive stuff we can put on to get the community to come in here. Because, look, in 1997, even that was the beginning of the Internet and things like that. People can look at that stuff at home. Jurassic Park was nearly four or five years old. You know, people felt like they'd seen all this stuff. Right. And so museums and I see it all the time and you do, too. They come up with the, like elaborate ways to try to get people to come to the ex- uh, exhibitions now. And I, so I totally bought that. And I think it's a, it, I, you know, Preston and Child were having a, a statement about it in the book. And I think the filmmakers left it in there, too, is that, you know, these scientists have to really whore themselves out to get to the really, really uber rich and to like the mayor and people like that so that they can get the funding they need to do their work. Oh, it's, it's even like the movie industry is you're going to get guys, you know, big actors, big directors that are going to do big budget, you know, summer blockbuster movies that are going to make $800 million, but their passion is for probably for something a little bit more smaller, intimate, more of an art piece, but what makes money? Is yeah. the big movies, exactly. but they they have to do that in order to get themselves enough, you know, you know, leeway within the system, be able to go out there and make a movie that's probably not going to make any money. It's it's kind of like their reward, and it's the same way when you're looking at something at a museum where, you know, you're going to do these big gaudy exhibits that really have no not not very much scientific merit. Right. But will draw kind of a general interest because let's be honest, I mean, nine out of ten people aren't going to be interested in going into the museum and learning about the ancient, you know, African tribes and you know what is now the Congo or something. Hint, hint. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, you know what I mean? It's yeah, you know, no, no. Go I, there. They're they're going to go there for I, oh my god, they got animatronic dinosaurs there. Let's go there and right. Rock. You know, you know what I mean? So I, I, like I said, I I, I get her, her character because it's always a mindset like that. You know, I that I I can't say I relate to it, but something I always see in Hollywood and something I always appreciate and something I don't get mad about when I see you know act you know 
you know, directors doing big budget movies when it's like, well, that's going to open up their passion project. So you got to go with it. So I, 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 I do like that. I think it's actually telling a little bit more and a little bit more of a, a statement on almost society as a whole than more well, just than it's, it's a good snapshot of the 1990s. Like we it talked is, about this is. too. And like entertainment in the nineties would reflect what was going on in our side. It was, it was a time of peace pretty much. We weren't at war with anybody. You know, there was, this was pre nine 11 and that, that was a different world. I mean, it really was. And so we would dream up problems for ourselves here. And one of them was this, how can I, you know, remain important in my field and not totally sell out. You know, and, and there was that movement in Hollywood too, where like we have these big budget movies, but then all these indie directors like Tarantino and Kevin Smith and people like that came on the scene and changed the game. And so it was, there was a, a push and pull going on back and forth in, in Hollywood. And then there was this, something going on in the scientific community that manifested itself in like seventies and eighties and early nineties books that then wound up on the screen. And I think there's a ton of 1990s films that all fall into this idea of like the science you know crossing a boundary and becoming too commercial jurassic park is a great example of this and uh you know things like sphere and this movie and and a bunch of others you know there, there's several we could cover in this but i think they all fall into that same category of science that becomes too commercialized and the boundary that that gets crossed that shouldn't be you know they cross that stream and all of a sudden it's it, you know it's katie bar the door mm-hmm. yeah so, totally agree so so back we've taken a great <laughs> detour there because nothing happens oh, for man, about 25 really minutes off a subject there well i but mean look what, but, that, but that's what we do that's what we do that is what we do and look like i said walking through this movie piece by piece is really boring so Don, I mean, what, what, what do you think that has to say about donald trump in our society today of <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to go there? I don't think we want to go there right now. So uh, it's a little too close to home. So ask me again in September. But no, picking back up with the movie though, we do have the the group of kids, and there's the kids that hang behind, of course, to try to hang out in the museum after it's closed. And Ooh, what what lame kids? I got to say that right now. I know, you kinda, right? You, you go, I mean, I get the one kid's like, you know, theory on. Hey, let's cut out of school, and the last place they're going to look for us is at a museum. It's like, dude, you go to a, you know, you're obviously like, I think it says in Chicago, you probably yeah. go to a public school in Chicago that's got probably five thousand kids and forty kids in a classroom. They don't care where you are. You know, go do what <laughs> well, you're going to do. I want to say this though: the way those kids were dressed and the way they look, that's probably a school with rich parents. <laughs> who were really freaking out when those kids didn't show back up for the bus that afternoon. Somebody would have noticed that. How old do you think those kids were? 10? What? 10? Yeah, 10 or 11, maybe. I I I guess. The the, the balls on those kids to be out (laughs) in, like, downtown Chicago. I mean, honestly, if that was my kid and I found out that he cut out of school and went to downtown Chicago, whether or not he lived there, you know, actually was going around with his friend, I... I'd be putting uh, freaking two by fours on his door. He's stuck. He <laughs> say, it'd be homeschool for Chase for, for oh, a long man. time. There would be wrath coming down upon <laughs> his ass for doing that. Exactly. Again, you know, this is the world we lived in. But the we get the reveal, not the reveal of the monster so much yet, because that comes later. But we get it in shadows. But we get Fred, the security guard, who goes to toke up 
in the bathroom because I don't know about you, Nick. When when I get off work, I'm gonna hang out at my place of work to do illegal drugs. So I mean, you could go down the street. I'm sure nobody cared. It was the '90s, but whatever. Uh, so you know what though? Uh, one of my old jobs I worked at. Uh, one of the people there used to do a uh, little. <laughs> In the office, and uh, the job before that, I knew someone who used to drink heavily before operating a forklift. So, Jeez, did you work for Colin Fair and horrible bosses one time or another? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of when you said that. Was that guy? So, <laughs> I didn't say it. I I sniffed it. But, yeah, there you go. Well, yeah, implied um, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We won't get into that job, but um, yeah, yeah. But I no, guess, I guess I guess you know what? For me, I guess it's. Not that hard fetched to believe. I mean, okay, how many people are there at night? Maybe five people, and you know, the guy, I don't know, maybe just wants to toke up before he gets in the taxi. I don't know. And that's what I was wondering too. But e- either way, he gets you know killed, and we find out later on. Well, that he, gets, he gets killed because he's smoking weed. I mean, you you smoke well, yeah. weed in a in, in a horror movie, you're, you're going to die. I mean, well, you know, they're holding on to tropes established in the 1980s. <laughs> From Jason in the Woods. It's nice to know that John Whitney felt the same way. Um, <laughs> I, guess, I guess the thing is, I don't see the point of the whole weed smoking, though. I mean, I, okay, I, get, I guess it was, it's kind of funny. I mean, would it been I th- I'll tell you what it out? is. I, it's to have a guy go into the bathroom to do something besides use the bathroom. Because we can't do that. You know, like and now yeah. Rob Zombie would have his pants around his ankles. You well, know, so. you know but, but then again, you could just have him go out in the alley and go smoke a cigarette. You could, but they do it in the bathroom because it makes the threat inside the museum and it gives the police this reason to sort of shut down the museum and stuff. And we, his body, you know, is found in one place, his head's in another, and they go through this whole autopsy scene. And there's this whole undercurrent, and this is actually in the book too, and they do a pretty good job of laying this exposition in, is that there's a hormone that is really similar to the hormones produced by the human hypothalamus in your, in your brain, your brain stem, that's a part of these leaves. And what's not in the film that's in the book is that this movie, the, the monster hangs around for about a year and a half eating those leaves. And only when they finally destroy him does it start killing people because it has to find another source for that, that drug or else it'll, it'll die. Okay. So that, you know, so that was, that, that was a book invention. Yes. That, that was a book there, invention. There, there's and, a leaf that grows naturally in, nature yes and a fungus that goes on it that they can feed this thing and it it lives off that hormone like it has to have that hormone to live and what the, tr- the fuck <laughs> it's, well again it's science tribal mumbo jumbo is what it is it's bullshit but so is it in those little yeah. bead things on top of the leaf that was the hormones or the <laughs> excrement that grew from the that's, leaves that that's the fungus of the hormone yes and it's the and same that's, and that's one thing yeah. i didn't get is why does he need to eat these is it like this he's like a meth addict and he needs to get a hit I, no that's exactly right it, it, it is exactly and they even explained that in the movie too that this thing is attracted to these and now in the film they, they go into a lot more about it or in the book they do because they can but they make a big deal out of it in the film that these people getting killed are having their their back of their head punched out and their brain ripped out for the human hypothalamus. But the problem is, and one of the scientists drops the line about it in there, is that, but the amount from the leaf is like 30 times more than you could get out of the hypothalamus, which is why the thing goes on the killing spree. Because it only gets a little bit. So it's got to kill more, and it's got to kill more, and it's got to kill more. I guess it would be like, I, I don't know, if you if you had a, a, a mosquito that was so used to, to cattle blood or whatever and then you like sequestered it off somehow from that that it would just start biting anything it could to get a little bit of something i I don't know 
Uh, but I mean, how, yeah. how, how did it know though that those hormones? Well, he doesn't even know it's hormones. He's just eating these leaves or this right. uh, jelly stuff on the leaves. How was it able to know that there's something similar within the brain? Well, and see, that is never explained in either source. It's supposed to be one of the things that the the tribe believes is ingrained in the demon part of the creature. And so it knows I can go after people and get my hit for whatever I need, but they don't explain it in either source. It's again, it's that science mumbo jumbo, uh, booga booga. And here we go. And in the movie, it's really laid out fast like that. So you just have to kind of go with it. Like, uh, this how about is, this? Yeah. How about this? The, the thing eats, the thing eats meat. There you go. Yeah. Well, it's got to, it's got to, it's got to eat meat. So there you go. Could have been that simple, but they didn't go that way. Now, I want to talk about the creature, though, because we're about to get into where it gets revealed a lot more, and you, and you see it. Well, we're, uh, are we going to cut over the, uh, the the funny mortician or the um, person doing the autopsy? Well, we talked about her. Do you like her? I mean, she was like a knockoff from a you know NBC show. Oh, my God. She needed to hook up with the old man in the wheelchair. They would have made the funniest couple ever. If she would have ended up hooking up with the dude in the wheelchair, <laughs> that would have been the that would have been the greatest movie couple of all time. Well, that because he's you know quipping a lot too. But I thought you know he I know and they would have been hilarious. You get well, a couple like old fashions in them and stuff. Thank God they'd be the life of the party. Well, I loved her little partner who like would never say anything, and she makes a joke about can't get a word in edgewise with this guy. I'm like, are he all corners? <laughs> I'm like, are all corners just wise asses or something? I was like, I guess maybe you have to be to do that job. I don't know. I was gonna say, but the old you're looking yeah, at but, well, bodies all I will day, say right? this: watching this with my wife, though, I made that comment, and she said yes because the ones she knows apparently are. So to to do this job, I guess you have to be. But um, why can't we get somebody like Dana Delaney who plays a coroner now, a body of evidence or proof or whatever that show is? You know, she's she's playing a coroner now. They could have done that, but. I that was a throwaway scene. I mean, that, but they get the hypothalamus bit out in that, and well, that's why you pay attention the brain to it. Was light, and, right? You know, light, light for a man too. So right, yeah, exactly. They had to do that, and they had to. They did the Fletch joke that he's five four with his head, maybe six foot. You know, so they they did that, and I was fine with that. But the middle part of this, where nothing happens, is when the cops shut down the museum and are looking for something. They don't. They're looking for a person, and they think they found like a homeless guy with an axe, and he's the one doing it. And they're like, "Why? Why would a guy with an axe start ripping people's brains out and eating them?" Like the the cop is totally against this, and he has that run in with that. I just called the guy the suit. That apparently is the business end or whatever or supposed to be the business end of the museum and their their public relations front or whatever who calls the mayor to make the mayor call the lieutenant and go hey uh, we're gonna have this tonight because my wife looks good in her cleavage dress or what the hell ever he says it's Jaws right now it's Jaws <laughs> exactly it is it is the mayor from Jaws you're right I mean it's like we gotta we gotta do this because of money we I mean, need just... summer dollars. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it is a trope from Jaws, and it's, you know, one I don't mind. I think, you know, it's, again, I like that there is kind of a running clock going on in this movie with, okay, well, we need to be able to find what the hell's going on before a certain amount of time. You know, I think it, it adds a little bit more of a dramatic edge to what's going on here. It adds a little bit more suspense, so it, it is something I liked, and I guess I, I do like all the little bit of comedy that they're adding into this movie, because they could have made this thing so deathly serious and because it has such a silly premise. I mean, let's look at it, you know, whether it's the book or the movie and from what I'm understanding, the book has got a lot of similarities or, you know, the movie is kind of a, you know, 
dissection piece of the book, but you got a guy who transforms into this big giant creature who eats hormones that are grown from a plant. And when he can't get that, he's got to rip off people's heads and eat part of the uh, hypothalamus or whatever the hell it is. So I'm glad that they do add these little elements of jokes in here. I mean, between the cleavage and then the autopsy and even the old man in the wheelchair, we're just going to call him wheels from now on. Um, (laughs) I like like that they're adding these kind of funny characters, even the – the you know the evil asian the fat asian <laughs> oh god guy. yeah would that not be most stereotypical evil asian scientist i mean oh you, you know you know he's evil because he's fat so he, he's a fat and, he, asian. and he's never, trying to steal margo's grant asian. yeah and he's trying to steal yeah. margo's grant and i'm like this but he comes on like a used car salesman like that guy's not a scientist that's that and that's also that's another like I'll say now that character in the book is is just as much a weasel except he's the one that actually figures out that the thing was a human he doesn't get killed. Let's talk about the creature though because this is this is the biggest difference. All right, describe for your for the audience here who maybe hasn't seen this thing. If you had to describe this creature in one sentence, describe what it looks like. You take the predator's head, you put it on the body of a rhinoceros, and you give it a long tail. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, 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 that's what this thing looks like on the screen. And it is tremendous. It's ferocious. It's angry. Uh, that predator face, you're right. I mean, Stan Winston just copied that and reversed it or something. It does. I mean, it's exactly it's, – it's a predator face. It's got the mandibles, and it's got the vagina mouth. And the only thing difference is it's, it, has a, it has like a serpent tongue. It has that, and it has those beetle incisors on the side that they make a big deal about. In the book, and I want to say this, in the book, this thing is more like the size of a child, like a 10 or 12-year-old. It looks like a big reptilian monkey. with. It's got a pretty ferocious mouth, but it's got huge claws. That's what it looks like. It's more reptilian than it is anything else. Gecko, they they keep the gecko bit because it climbs around on the wall like a gecko. Uh, not the Geico gecko, but like a big one. Um, so it's li- it's little in the book. It's, it's it's small. It's not big at all, and it does the same damage to people. I mean, it rips their heads off. It does all that stuff, but it doesn't overpower them it, by all this you know mass. It's strong and it's fast because that's another thing. These leaves and hormones make it super strong and super fast, but it's not big. Which is why, we, like, they, they do a bit where Degusta shoots it a bunch and nothing happens to it. In the book, that's a big deal because they keep shooting the thing, but the bullets bounce off of it because its skin is so tough it, you can't kill it. They end up having to shoot it through the eye to kill it. Hold on one second. I got to take care of one thing real quick. Oh my god, that's cold. Okay, okay, sorry about that. I had to get dinner out of the oven. It was beeping at me. <laughs> so, okay. I was, I was, I was purposely chewing ice just so you uh, edit that out. That's okay. I'm gonna have to cut all that shit out anyway. So. Okay. Um, what was I say? In the book, the thing's much more mammalian and and lizard, and in addition to being reptilian, and it's smaller. They end up having to shoot it through the eye to kill it. Uh, because they can't impenetrate its skin. And I'll say this now. I know why they went with Big Monster. If you go with a little monster, the reaction would be just what you did. 
that thing did all this? Because you wouldn't buy it. It has to be Jaws, right? It has to be this ferocious thing, or else well, it, it does. wouldn't I mean, work. It, it, yeah. Size does matter. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it does. It does in monster movies. I think you're exactly right. It does. It, and, I, and I think working in like a book that's more, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the book is probably more based in suspense than it is in. It, it, yeah, it, it is. A, it's a page turner and a suspense book. It, it it And it's much more serious. Like all the jokes are the movies. Like the humor is not there in the book. And it's and you wouldn't want it if you're reading that book. It's a suspense book. You want it to turn pages, and, and that's what it does. And, it reads like and I, and I think that works a little bit better when you're in a book because if it's if it's something that's more suspense-based, I think that's going to work a little bit more. But if you're watching this movie and you're seeing, like, this guy get his head ripped off and whatever, and you're hearing, you know, these sounds and you find out the things like, you know, no bigger than a freaking teenager. I mean, <laughs> is, that, is, that, is, that, is that really going to be, like, all oh, awesome creature? It's going to be more like, you know, it's going to be – you're going to you're going to laugh at it. Yeah. And in the book, there's a a big sense of like like they're like, you know, it it's more sad and lonely than it is ferocious. This thing is just a killing machine. It's just a shark with on land almost. And it destroys everything near it. And and I'm fine with that. Again, it's, it's a difference, though, that you note, because what I'm trying to think of is, well, if they had tried to do it like the book in this movie, I don't think it would have worked because the tone would have been totally wrong. Because then it would have been a big joke. Because it would be like, really? That's all it is? You know, like Buffy did that a couple of times in the show. Like the well, monster, they build it up, and then all of a sudden it was nothing. And, and I, I always found the humor in that. But in this movie, that wouldn't work. Like, I think it has to be this ferocious beast. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're in a movie where, especially like a monster movie, and like if the reveal is something that it's really small, it's usually played up for laughs. And how it normally right. goes is like, oh my God, that's it. Oh, ha ha. Oh my God, it's attacking. Isn't that kind of funny? I mean, that's that's kind of how it's played up. Almost like if you've seen the movie uh, Krampus, you know, how it's like <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the gingerbread men, like, oh, aren't they funny? And all of a sudden they pull out a nail gun. So well, that's, or, that's or typically if how that goes. Yeah, or if you've seen Thanks Killing and the gobble turkey comes at you with a knife. Or H- Hellboy thing. too with the little uh, uh, tooth fairies. <laughs> I think so, we've run the gamut of genre pick there, by the way, in about 20 seconds. But <laughs> so all of which I fear are sleepless somewhere in, in my, Seattle. <laughs> all, all, I fear now. It's all the of this Meg is, Ryan of Sleepless in Seattle. I, all I know is that somewhere all of these are probably in my podcasting future, except maybe for Sleepless in Seattle. So no, unless you want to listen, that, that's our, but that's our next one in our monster retrospective. <laughs> it could it could have been maybe Tom Hanks's hair? But anyway, I I think the the creature needed to be big. That said, if there's anything that dates this movie. It's the CGI on the creature. When it's a practical effect, I think the puppet looks looks okay. They keep it, you know, darkly lit. So they do the this Alien versus Predator so Requiem. Dark. That's the Alien versus Predator Requiem job, though. Is that well, it's going to look bad if we put light on it. So let's not put the thing in the light. So I agree with that that motion. That's smart. If, if they had lit that, we'd all be like, that is the goofiest looking thing on the planet. You know, so yeah. I, I'm fine. I do with like the fact. I do like some of the practical effects, like especially like as the movie goes on, and you know they end up opening up this gala, of course, and you know the thing's gonna attack when that happens, and you do get some scenes of it attacking in there, especially like when you get some of these SWAT guys coming down into oh, this gala room and stuff, yes. and they have the lights on it. I think those are actually pretty effective scenes when you see like the light go on its face with the water coming down, and it's like it's you know I think pretty well done in that regard i think it's something like oh shit it's kind of 
It feels though a lot like Howard the Duck's Dark Overlords, though, to me. Like it looks a lot like that. Yeah, but you know what? So he he's got some pretty awesome ways that it takes out these people. I mean, you got the one where it runs the guy down and literally rips his head off. Okay, yeah. it does look fake. I mean, it, we, this is what ninety what ninety seven. Yeah, not it's it's nineteen ninety seven. So you got to give it that. And but there, there's some pretty cool, gruesome stuff. Like I like the one where. They're pulling the guy up, and also they pull him up, and he's just half a body. Like it yeah, just the SWAT team guy on the rope. Yeah. No, I was like, that was that was a useless side. that was a useless kill though. It was like, oh, I didn't get the hypothalamus. Damn it! I was hoping <laughs> though when they pulled him up, and you got the two people like looking down at it, like the creature would have came back up, grabbed those two guys, and like dragged them back down with them. Well, see, like, I'll tell you why right they there, didn't do him. that. I'll tell you why they didn't do that. Because if it could jump that high, then it can get out, and then, then it gets loose in the city, and then oh, then it's a problem. <laughs> then we've yeah, then, but I, then, I, I then Chicago like just that, gets that, nuked. That's that's I what I wish happens. that was something that was brought up though in the movie was. This thing could obviously have gotten out. And right. it's like, it being a wild animal, why did it not do that? And then you later find out, well, no, it's intelligent. It's got some type of understanding. And it knows that if it got out, it would probably end up getting killed. So it's staying to the shadows. Yeah, you made a great assumption there. Because they don't talk about it enough in the in the film. It's bigger in the book. The fact that this thing is is partially human, it maintains humans' understanding of things. And so it knows I used to be human and I have to have these drugs to deliver this, you know, this hormone to deliver whatever. But if I get out of here, I, I mean, I could probably take out a lot of folks, but they're going to unleash the holy hell of SWAT on me. I'm going to stay inside where I've got all my food cornered. And I, I think that's a smart trait of the monster, actually, is that it doesn't try to get out. At no time is, do I feel like this monster is trying to get out. It's just trying to get what it wants. Which is and, the hypothalamus. And I, I think, guess. and I think, based upon like what you're telling me, the book is, it probably would have had a better chance surviving outside the museum, being a smaller creature, being the size of a rhinoceros is what it is. I don't know where hell it could hide in a, in a <laughs> yeah. city. Yeah, know? that's the that's the other thing. This thing has no stealthiness to it at all. That other one, like in the book, that's what makes the book suspenseful. Is you never know around what corner it is. I'll, I'll tell you what the feeling was like reading that book. It's like watching Tom Skerritt go through those little tunnels in Alien when you know it's coming around the corner somewhere. That's the way that thing attacked. It was very stealthy. This thing is just friggin' huge. And <laughs> it's, it's bringing it. You know, it's, uh, oh, yeah. it's a different way of going. So, yeah, you're all right, though, when it runs down that one cop and grabs him by the arms and then rips his head off. That That is a pretty decent-looking shot. I mean, that, it's not bad for the time. It, it's okay. But no, we I get gotta, a lot of killing. Ask, though, did he kill the mayor and the cleavage wife? No, they get out with uh, Detective Nobody. Um, he kills the PR guy from hell, but the old uh, Linda Hunt and the mayor and his wife and a, I think the Blazeviches, who are the really rich people, I think they all get away in the sewers somewhere or another. But I, the thought, mayor, I thought they stayed back with the Chinese or the Asian guy. They may, they he, may have. I don't remember seeing them get killed in the SWAT you know wipe out that goes on because that's all yeah, that same it, was, scene. it wasn't it wasn't yeah. clearly stated that i know there was a couple people that stayed behind and i want to say the mayor and his wife did because they kept on saying we we're not going to do it we can't make it they didn't because that's the the rich couple that stayed behind and i'll tell you why i know that okay. because the mayor you know has been this thorn in the augusta's side when the captain is outside talking about you know i'm going to ring that guy the mayor walks up behind him like hey the guy's to save us leave him alone or you might be on the beat or something like that you know he does some like you okay, realize okay. oh he's so it was made a it was a different couple I was yeah old, i mean the, again people, in the dark old people confuse me so <laughs> hey, in they, the dark they all look alike 
in the dark, it would be easy to get lost in all these people. I get it. Well, it's the they, thing, too. The movie was so verily, you know, it was so dim as far as the lighting goes. So I was just like, well, who was left in there? But I think they all got killed. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe that a bunch of old people who can barely move wouldn't be, like, picked off by this giant creature yeah. pretty easily. So yeah, it goes, I, I it like goes that, after the... I, I, Go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say, um, I was happy to see the the evil Asian get killed. No, the Cathoga wreaks havoc. You know, it wrecks some folks. Now, I want to talk about Doctor Green and D'Augusta's brilliant idea. Okay, <laughs> she gets a tank of like, I guess, like liquid nitrogen. Since they're gonna terminate her to the thing, I'm gonna freeze the son of a bitch. And so they chase it into the water. <laughs> And it hangs up, you know, he hangs up some leaves and is waiting, you know, for it to come. And the whole time the thing is like sitting there waiting on him. You know, they, and chum, then, they, they, they chum the water. With yes, the they, they chum the water. And when it rises up, he unloads the clip on it, does no good. She sprays the thing for like two seconds and drops it. And then they run out of there together. And I looked at my wife and I said, worst plan ever. I was like, there was nothing. That was a bad idea. That was a really, really bad idea because all they did was piss it off. I mean, it, and made themselves the clear next target, you know, because it's already killed the wheels guy. You know, it came up on him and, and wipes him out. And now they chase it and try to freeze it. And well, that was a bad idea. Hmm. Yeah, totally. It totally was a bad idea. Now I got to ask with all these people dying and most of these guys were characters in the books, right? Yeah. They, I mean, they weren't drawn out. Like I didn't, all the people that get killed, you didn't know like their entire backstory or anything. It wasn't that in depth, but they're the same characters. Now, is there any people in the movie that got killed that weren't killed in the book? Uh, yeah. Uh, the, well, the Greg Lee character, he's got a different name. That's more truly Asian in the book. Uh, and he, he, he lives and he's the one that actually runs the DNA analysis that realized, no, that's John Whitney. No, that's really him. Y'all. That's not just the thing. Didn't just kill Whitney. It's him. Like he figures that out. And, and the twist in the book is that he figures out how to manufacture that hormone synthetically and he starts breeding Cathogas on his own or breeding loved ones on his own. That's how the book ends on a twist. Is that so the twist of the movie? They give you that right at the beginning of the right in the middle of the third act that, oh, it's actually the you know, scientist guy. And, you know, at, it, it comes at the end of the book and it's a much bigger surprise because you've totally forgotten about the guy by the time the the book gets to that point. Like I hadn't thought about him mm. ever. And then, so that's the one big difference is that the scientist, uh, the science, the Asian scientist weasel guy lives, uh, in the book. So, cause what in about, real life, what, that would what happen. What about wheels? Does he live in the book? I uh, know he gets killed pretty well about the same way. So, uh, okay. He, yeah. Yeah. Most of the ones that died in the film died in the book too. Um, and there were more characters too. I mean, there's, there's not so much a SWAT team that gets taken out cause there's, I mean, it, it doesn't have that, again, that mass to be able to pull off that kind of killing, but it does kill a lot of people, you know, and they kind of gloss over all the homeless people that it kills and stuff. I mean, it's been doing that for like a year in the book. So it's, there's a body trail behind the thing for sure, but we get the big showdown finally though, because, you know, as all good heroines do after their plan fails initially, they decide let's split up. Uh, Cause then we can get killed individually. And Dia Augusta goes to the right and Dr. Green goes back to her lab and the thing's chasing her and we get 
what I feel like is the the part of this that I thought this is only thrown in because of once again we have to objectify this poor woman. You know, we've now done it twice. Let's do it again. She's put the bullet in her cleavage. She changed in front of us. Now she's mixing up some kind of cocktail of of chemicals on the fly. By the way, that that was amazing. I was like, this woman's doing like analytical chemistry on the fly. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> All right, while something's changing, and, you're trying and, to eat and her. it worked for Walter White, right? Uh, you know, she would have been a good lab partner to Walter. That's a good point. But she's mixing up stuff and waiting for it to blow in the, the microwave. And meanwhile, here comes the thing, and she's got, you know, a, another, like, quick bomb grenade or whatever it is. And it corners her at the elevator where she's waiting to be able to, like, go and get away. And it stops to lick her. Now, this thing nearly broke through a steel door earlier, but it sees a cage in front of it, and it's like, no, I'm going to lick her first and then eat her. Why did we need to do that? I thought it was trying to hint that maybe that they were some type of in a relationship earlier, that maybe like her feelings towards this guy were something more than just a co-worker, and by him seeing her, he was kind of resorting back to like, you know, maybe the human side of him was coming out. And I'm not saying like he's licking her to lick her. I'm thinking more of it was like a like a dog. Like how a dog would lick a person as far as like showing affection. Where maybe well, it was at a, it recognizing her and kind of trying to demonstrate like, you know, oh I, I know you or something like that. Like I don't know if the thing would have I mean, do you think it would have killed her if she wouldn't have done anything? I don't know because she she pulls that on it. She reverses that on it. That's a good point that you're making there that that she that it's trying to relate to her as a human because she goes, "I know who you are," and like it stops for a second and growls at her, and it, it's almost like it makes it mad or something. And that's when she escapes and stuff starts to blow up around her. So and, maybe and, she and is that. It, it is a very it, it, it's the things changing. It's it's you know way it's killing right there because all we've seen in the movie before is the thing was just it wouldn't stop and like look at them it would just run people down and kill them and it was almost like you know when you saw the movie predator how you know the predator was killing everybody else but when he got to arnold it didn't just kill him it was like no we're gonna change this up a little bit and i'm gonna stare you down that's kind of how it felt it went away yeah. but Trying to you know bring in the whole ending where you find out that this guy is that I thought it was something where he just all suddenly recognized her. That's why he didn't really just run her down. I think he recognized something in her, and I don't know. I mean, like I said, maybe it would have killed her, maybe it wouldn't. But either way, she decided to, and, and rightfully so. I mean, got a uh, eight hundred pound creature in front of you. Is she throws the napalm type thing that she <laughs> yeah made the, up. the Molotov cocktail from hell. You know, that explodes. And they do get one cool effect shot here because the the one time they do light the creature up is when it's on fire. You know, they're like, well, now you can't see how cheap it looks. So they, they light the thing up and it comes chasing after her. And I love that her answer is, I'm, they set up this vat early. This is the Chekhov's vat. I uh, call it because they talk about we boil the meat off of the bones here and then we let the beetles do the rest. She jumps in a boiling vat and shuts the ceiling very slowly as the burning creature looks over and she tells it to go to hell before Ron Howard's backdraft blows it up. Yeah. Now, it obviously wasn't boiling, though, when she jumped into it. I mean, you would have seen it bubbling if it was boiling, so... Uh, yeah, but I'm, but I'm like, well, I guess if there's no other place to go, that's where you go. 
<laughs> but that's the thing, though, is I, I find it's like you, you can turn the lid on from inside of it, though. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, does, does she, how does she trigger that thing? And I went back and looked at it because I was curious about that. She, there's a there's an insert shot where she actually hits the switch jumping into it. I'm like, somebody wise in post-production says, how does she do that from the inside? And they're like, holy well, shit, let's go back and shoot well, that. She locked herself in that room, right? Right. And then it beat down the door to get into her anyway because what's the difference? Okay, so where's where, where's the Gusta at this point? Is he, he's is on he the a- outside chasing the thing. That's what he's doing. He's trying so, to find it. Yeah. How long does she have in that vat before she's done? I wouldn't know because again, you say you made a good point. I, maybe it's not on, so maybe it's not. So yeah, I but still, though, I mean, okay, if that water's you know you go they've gone below room temperature now because they know it's it's. I don't know. It's probably got some. T- I, I don't know what the water temperature would be if it had a carcass in there with her. But being stuck in that water, though, you can't last. All that long, well, I don't I think guess. she was so, in there. I, I don't get that she was in there long because, again, this huge wave who got of her flame. Out, who got her out and who knew that she was in there? Well, she's banging on the side of it when they pick the explosion knocks the gust out, Dr. Loomis style. Uh, in Halloween too, and then, but without the burn scars, they find him. He gets up and he hears her banging on the door, and that that's when they let her up because the fire when it blows through the the thing. That's why I call it the background. Okay, okay. It puts I, itself I, out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm totally misremembering the ending, so <laughs> it's okay. Okay, I got you. I got you. Yeah. So that that's what happens. I mean, again, it's the 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 fire of convenience uh, destroys the the monster, and it, but it puts itself out so that nothing else burns down. Because we've only destroyed two thirds of this museum, and her entire life's work presumably is now up in flames. But we're alive. Well, with so all, I, I with all those chemicals, with all those chemicals in there too, it's like you got a big giant chemical fire going on inside. Oh, I know. It. Like, I'm like that would not go out that easily. I there would you'd have to work on that a little bit. Like the halon what, the, didn't even. And that's go what on. I'm also thinking too. Is like she's in that big metal that and that thing's getting surrounded by flames i mean it's got to get pretty hot in there oh dude yeah. it, it is and, I, and i'm thinking too like if and I'm, I'm applying too much realism to an act to a to a b-rated action monster movie here but let's just think for a minute if every chem lab i've ever seen that has that kind of flammable stuff in it you don't pour water on that you have foam that releases that knocks all that stuff out i'm like there's water raining from the ceiling like it's you know they're standing outside in a monsoon or something at all times and that that would not help in a chemical fire like it, like I, I brought that point up when brian and i reviewed superman 3 that rain would not put out the chemical fire that would not help so that would probably make it worse actually so spreading I, it exactly so but again it, we're not supposed to think about it like that. We're thinking about it because we're reviewing this and trying to pick through it, but that doesn't make any sense, you know. And and well, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm just know, stating that you know it's a movie yeah. that's trying to bring in all this scientific uh, mumble well, yeah, jumble. But, but again, they can't. Yeah, they can't do the ending that's in the book. It's kind of like Jaws. Like you've read the if you've ever read the book Jaws, the shark drowns because it's got too many harpoons hanging off of it, so it's swimming up to Brody and it just dies under its own weight. Because if a shark stop swimming it dies it drowns and the shark drowns and sinks and that's the end of the book and it's kind of like hey spielberg wanted a big explosion boom you get a big explosion i think they did the same thing here in the book the thing's charging down the hall at them and they keep shooting it and they realize well we can't shoot its skin and the uh, special agent guy is like a sharpshooter so he pulls out a big revolver and hits it right in the eye and it drops 
And that's it. And it was like, whoop, the end. And I thought, well, yeah, that would have been a dud if they shot it and it just fell over. Like, that would have been... Because they fired all kinds of, you know, ammunition at this stupid thing already. So they, they had to have it go out in a in a big blaze of glory, pun intended. Yeah, I totally agree. If they would have done something with uh, just shooting it in the eye, it would have been like, that's it. <laughs> you couldn't have yeah, done that yeah. earlier. I mean, you got yeah. guys shooting shotguns at them and everything, and it's like, couldn't got it in the eye any earlier, huh? Well, you need you need a big action scene, and that's what we get here at the end. And it had to be, I think it had to be Dr. Green. Like, because, you know, I've said before, the main character of this thing is the creature, but I don't even think the cop is the lead-through character. I think we're really supposed to follow her, because she's the one, even though she's smarter than everyone else, really, she explains everything in language that the audience can understand, which is, she's almost like a great, she's like Tina Fey, she's a science teacher. All of a sudden, so she's explaining things that you normally wouldn't get, and so I, I think, um, I, th- I think it's good that we give the kill to her. Is what I'm trying to say. Like you want her to have the Jamie Lee Curtis H2O moment where she chops off the head, right? You want her to blow it up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the Halloween two ending, basically. <laughs> so. Well, it's it's really the Halloween H2O ending. The Halloween two ending, Doctor Loomis blows Michael up. So that's that's oh, how I that thought, goes. I thought Lori killed him in that one. I thought no, she no, shot no. him in the eyes, and then she. She shot him in the eyes, and then she ran out of the room while Loomis lit the lighter. So, uh, yeah. No, but now, God, that, movie, and, that movie sucks anyway. So. <laughs> I disagree, and people can go back and listen to my review of it from last Shocktober. But anyway, before we get too much further down it, we do get the blow up, and then, like we said, Augusta rescues her, and they, you know, he, she tries to give him the bullet back, and he's like, "No, keep it." But he does a, he does a last superstition moment, Nick. He, you know, before in the start of the movie, he was going to take a step, and he thought, "Nope, not stepping over a dead body." There's a piece of this thing laying on the ground, smoldering, and he's like, "Nope, not stepping over that," and walks around to the side of it. So he's still uber superstitious in spite of all of this that he's seen. Honey. <laughs> <laughs> But I, mean, I guess, you know what, maybe he has more right to be superstitious after all this. I mean, he just witnessed a man transform into a giant rhinoceros thing. So, Well, he didn't witness it. He and found he, out that's what happened to him. He didn't see that transfer. He didn't, he didn't go through Yeah, but yeah, he knew it happened. So, I mean, anything goes at, in this world. So, you know, stay away from black cats and ladders and upside down, you know, face down pennies and Yep. Hey, maybe I, Dr. Green's a cat lady and he's ready to make a change. I don't know, <laughs> but that's, that's how it ends. And they walk over to the Chicago night and then we get a nice, good helicopter shot walking away. That's, that's kind of it. So yeah, I guess, yeah, go ahead. I say they walk away as both their career ends. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess he's probably a hero cause he saved everybody and all that stuff, but her work is ruined. So including the billionaire that was probably going to give them money. He's probably dead. Oh, you, you, you know, know, in the political climate, especially someplace like Chicago where he's the head detective and the fact he couldn't figure that out quicker, you know, fast enough. And he allowed the museum to reopen for the gala. You think the mayor's going to take blame for that? Oh, not no. in he's Chicago. Gonna... You're right. No, yeah. he's, if you know anything about that Emmanuel guy there, oh no, they're untouchable. So <laughs> well, you, you're, gonna... you're, put, you're putting, you're putting modern politics in there, but you know what? You're not wrong. Chicago's not exactly known as wholesomeness for yeah, politicians. Yeah. If, if you go into politics in Chicago, you got two ways out. Either you're going to die in office or you're going to end up in prison. It's, it's one or the other. Hey, I guess we're at the point of the podcast, Nick, where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. I'm really curious to hear what yours are for The Relic. Um, 
my rating for this movie is it's it's a strong medium popcorn. I guess you could put all the extra butter, salt, uh, I don't know, that flavored awful salt stuff you see in the movie theater sometimes, like the uh, – I don't know. You know what I'm talking about, but I, I I really like this. It's not a large popcorn movie because it is a B monster movie, but I always, when I watch this, I actually end up having a good time with it. You know, it's, I wouldn't even call it a guilty pleasure. I just think it's a, it's a solid movie. I mean, I think it was a little bit, you know, the, the, the budget and the time that it was made really affected a lot of the, um, you know, basically the effects of the movie. But I think, it's for what it does it's a good meat and potatoes movie when it comes to being a monster movie and one that i think actually would be a very good one-two punch with watching the relic and possibly mean girls afterwards because we all know Lindsay lohan is a lot like the uh transforming creature that we see in this movie so eats the brains of people and it's 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 a medium popcorn it's it's a strong medium popcorn and a movie i will probably revisit like i said probably once a year it's a it's a nice movie <laughs> you know i i will say it's nice i think it is a good b monster pick and if you just sort of put your brain on the side and grab a coke and you know some cheetos or something you can sit down for an hour and 45 minutes and not feel like you completely wasted your time. Now, if you have read the book and you really like the book, you have to sort of set aside that you know anything about any of this, or else you'll do like I did for most of this podcast and watching it again the last few days and sort of go, that wasn't there. What's wrong with that? If you just sort of set all that to the side and just go with it for what it is, it's okay. It's it, They're a lot worse, and I think we're probably going to review a lot worse in this loosely strung together series of 90s bad B-level monsters. Um, so, <laughs> It's the most random retrospective ever. It may, it may be. And that, but that totally fits us. So we should do it. But yeah, but you know, it's fine. It's not great, but I'll I'll tell you again, I think Tom Sizemore, even being a bad actor and giving a really bad performance is funny. And Penelope Amular's fun. The creatures neat. It has some cool kills. There's some good action. It's a fun time. You know, it's not great, but it's okay. So I'll give it a medium popcorn and say, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's, it's a good fun set, turn your brain off for for an hour and forty five minutes kind of movie. You know, you know, you know yeah. what this movie is. It's the perfect movie to watch on a Tuesday that you're homesick from work. Exactly. Or if it's raining and cold outside and there's no more football. It's a Saturday afternoon and you got people coming over at six o'clock and you got to wash the floors. It's a good movie to throw on in the background. Exactly. And I will admit. It's one that I do revisit you know, every now and then, and I'll probably now having watched it again, I'll I'll probably watch it again you know, at least once a year or so because it was an enjoyable experience and fun to talk about. So I guess we could go ahead and spoil at least one of the things we're going to do in this retrospective. We're going to talk about Congo, which you and I have had a people can go back if they want to on Facebook. You and I have had a long running beef and conversation about Congo uh, going on, so we're going to get to that one too. Oh, the uh, fact that I the fact that I've pronounced the movie as the greatest movie ever made, and I have questioned your sanity <laughs> many times. Like, I'm like, anytime you do that, I always I always point to one thing. It's got a talking gorilla drinking a martini. <laughs> this is true, but so did Cannonball Run too. I don't think anybody would hold that up as a bastion of cinema, but. Maybe we'd go to that too. I don't know. But you know, there's all kinds of things we could put in this. Come on, come on, let's let's just lay it down. You got Tim Curry. You got Winston from Ghostbusters. (laughs) You got the guy who's in Nip Tuck. 
You got some blonde girl who's kind of like Helen. You got you've got the lady who's best when she's opposite of Richard Gere in Prime. I don't even know. I thought thought that was I thought that was Helen Hunt's like ugly cousin, and saying Helen Hunt's (laughs) ugly cousin is not saying a lot. So that's um, a good comparison, not the ugly part, but the Helen Hunt. And and, and you got Bruce Campbell in there in in a for like a second and a half. Yep, and then you got the dad from father from uh, son-in-law. No, 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 no. You got him. No, no. Joe Don Baker is that's Buford Pusser, man. He's also a, a James Bond guy. He's that guy's oh, a great character actor. That guy. That's, that's not the same guy from Son in Law. That's a different dude. So yeah, well, Joe Don Baker. Damn great. it. Now, now uh, I gotta go watch Son in Law. <laughs> maybe that one can be part of this '90s monster retrospective because Paulie Shore certainly be. was a monster. So <laughs> it could but, be, but but then you yeah. mix all that together with the beautiful African, you know, jungle, along with a talking gorilla drinking a martini. Well, in theory, you could trace it all back to Terror Vision, Nick. So I mean, it all started with Hungry. So <laughs> this this monster fascination that you have. So. Well, basically, what we're doing next will be Congo Sphere. And son-in-law, so <laughs> <laughs> that could that may be the most loosely strung together retrospective ever. So we've also told you folks before. I mean, we've got fun stuff coming up. We did, you know, we started off the year with the town that dreaded sundown. That's you know, uh, Ron and I had recorded that. We promise we are going to circle the wagons back again and finish up paranormal activity. We'll do that, and as promised, coming this year, the double-fisted horror retrospective Friday the thirteenth is going to get done. And a nightmare on Elm Street culminating in a battle royale with Freddy versus Jason. So we'll, we'll do that one, those later on this year too. And, and there may be some other cool stuff coming out that we, we latch our, our hooks into before it's all over. Bloodsport one through nine. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, I would do the first one. I would go back and see Jean Claude, uh, when he could do those, uh, the first time I saw him do the jump splits, uh, you know, so, uh, but yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that could be done, and who knows what we'll come up with here on continuous play. Because critters, we, we, critters, critters. We well, we've done that. So uh, you can find all Have of it we in done our critters. We we did critters one through four. How how dare you forgotten? So, oh my god! See, we've would, done so many. I've already forgot all about these. We're gonna have to do something yeah, like uh, we, ghoulies. And we've been we, we've been talking about that one for a long time. We've been podcasting for a long time. So you can go in the archive section of our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies, or just click on the, the film strip logo on Continuous Play's home site and find all of our old retrospectives. I mean, we have, of course, Critters, Terrorvision. We've dropped those. There's the whole Star Wars thing that's out there. Um, you've got, we've even got romantic comedies. You want to go back and listen to us talk about Pretty Woman? We did that one way back in the day. We did friggin' Mary Poppins once. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's all kinds of stuff in there, in addition to Halloween and Heat and Batman and all kinds of different things going on. So, uh, yeah, Brian and I will we'll bite the bullet to do Batman versus Superman since we did both of those before. We're Neither one of us really looking forward to that, but uh, that's going to be $15 gone, but, you know, hey. So and if you happen to see a movie review that I did, you can always bring it up and just be like, oh, yeah, remember you did that one? And I'm not going to remember. <laughs> I think we've proven that point right now. Exactly. You can tweet at Nick or Facebook him and, and he won't remember the retrospective. But it's it's there. It's on tape. So you Blair Witch Project, get out Blair, of here. Blair Witch <laughs> 1 and 2. We did that long before other people decided that that was cool enough to do. So yeah, lots of cool stuff out there for us. As always, folks, we appreciate your support. So uh, leave us a good review on iTunes, though. That helps other people find us. Tell folks about us. 
you know, hook up with us on our social media. We're always good to go back and forth and, and talk with you guys. Until next time, when we go into the jungles with some monkeys and some martinis. <laughs> for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.